Kelsey, today we have the incredible privilege to interview the international best-selling master of suspense, Dean Koontz. That title is certainly appropriate for an author who has had 14 of his novels reach the number one spot on the New York Times hardcover bestseller list. You might have heard of a few of these. One Door Away from Heaven, From the Corner of His Eye, Intensity, Soul Survivor, The Husband, What the Night Knows, and 77 Shadow Street. Kelsey, he's only one of a dozen writers to have reached that milestone. He's also had 16 paperbacks reach the top spot on the bestseller list as well. Dean Koontz was born and raised in Philadelphia and graduated from Shippensburg State College, now called Shippensburg University. He currently lives in Southern California with his wife, Jerda, their golden retriever, Elsa, and the enduring spirit of their goldens, Trixie and Anna. Dean Koontz, welcome to the first 50 pages. Thanks for having me there. Your bio tells us that when you were a senior in college, you won an Atlantic monthly fiction competition, and you have been writing ever since. To reach the level of success that you've had as a writer, words like determination, perseverance, grit, risk, and even faith come to mind for me. I've never read any account that says you were an overnight success. Can you tell us a little bit about what that journey was for you and how you found your way as a writer? Uh, Well, it definitely wasn't an overnight success. Yes, you're (laughs) right. I think it was about 15 or 16 years from the day I sold the first novel till we ever had anything on the bestseller list. Uh, and it was sometimes I felt like I was a dray horse hooked to a very heavy wagon and was <laughs> pulling it uphill. Uh, it, it, I, I once said to a graduating class where I was uh, the speaker at the during college graduation, I said, every graduate speaker tells you the world needs you, they want you, they need your energy, your new ideas. Uh, and they can't wait for you to graduate. I'm here to tell you, they don't want you, they don't like your new ideas, and they're going to make it hell on you to get anywhere. (laughs) That was sort of my own experience, uh, especially as I began to mix genres. Uh, And I can remember when the first time I started mixing suspense with a touch of science fiction, or with focusing on a genuine love story, not just a a little bit of of romance in the middle of a thriller. When I started blending those, the resistance was tremendous. And especially in the matter of humor, when I first introduced humor into a suspense novel, and for years afterward, every time I did it, uh, editors and publishers would say, you can't do this. People will not be suspenseful and have a sense of suspense. They won't be on the edge of their seat. They won't be frightened if they're laughing with the character. And my attitude was, yes, they will, because what you're doing there is just what you do in life. We deal with the vicissitudes of life with humor. And if the characters in the story do the same, they feel more real to us and we care about them more. So... It was a long haul. It was many, many years before I felt confident that I could go on making a living with this for maybe a significant part of my life. And now it's turned out to be nearly all my life. So one of the things that uh, readers and especially our patrons love about your writing is, you know, like you've mentioned already, that you often use humor in your stories, but that it really doesn't take away from the scary moments or the suspenseful flow. 
In fact, I know for me, when I read your stuff, it really intensifies those moments. And there are several of those moments in Quicksilver where there's, you know, a flash of humor in the midst of these life or death moments. And you kind of touched on it a little bit, but what continually drives you to use humor in this way? My wife said I'm a frustrated stand-up comic. <laughs> I, have, uh, I have learned when I do public speeches that I can keep an audience laughing for an hour, only telling them about stupid things I've done or stupid things that were done to me. Uh, and so life experiences turned out to uh, give me all that comic material. When you're writing a novel, what's so important then, if you are going to introduce humor, some novels don't allow it. A novel like Intensity, it just, you couldn't get away with it. Uh, or novel like The Taken, The Taking. Uh, but in many others, you can do it if you understand the character, if the character has a sense of humor and has a voice that really resonates with the reader, has some depth to it. Then you just listen to the character and that humor comes forth almost automatically uh, when you're writing the dialogue or the character's internal thoughts. If it doesn't, then either the character's wrong or this is not a book in which humor is going to play a significant role. And I've written many in which it doesn't, but I have the most fun writing when humor can be part of it. So the New York Times has called your writing psychologically complex, masterly, and satisfying. And Rolling Stone has hailed you as America's most popular suspense novelist. But maybe much to your past publisher's frustration, you aren't predictable in your writing. Readers always get some kind of surprise or something a bit different in each of your novels. I once heard it said that you created the cross-genre novel. Has this always been an intentional practice for you, or has it just happened as part of your creative process? Sort of, sort of both, uh, because uh, I've always read in every genre, uh, from westerns to romance to science fiction to suspense to literary fiction, which in my mind is just another genre. Uh, and when you find things you love in all those genres, then you want to write in those genres. But once publishers brand you, they don't want to let you out of that brand. Uh, and as a consequence, you just have to find a way to include all those things within the brand they've given you. In my case, they tried to call me a horror writer for a long time and I resisted strenuously because I'm, I'm not a guy who writes gore um, and I don't go for the bloody kind of scenes. They can be violent, they can be suspenseful, but I don't dwell on the viscera, let's say. And, uh, but the way to get around that was to, uh, yeah, okay, I'll let you put that suspense brand on me if you want, but then I'm gonna do all these other things. And you were right when you said there were moments when I delivered it and I was told this will destroy your career. It happened actually fairly early in this when I'd had my first two hardcover bestsellers and I delivered a book called Lightning and my publisher argued with me for six months before she would agree to publish it. And she said, if you make me publish this book, it will destroy your growing career. Instead, it was higher uh, on the bestseller list than any book before it. And the book right after that became my first number one. 
So you have to listen to write it by editors and publishers because they do a wisdom tone part at times. But when you're very sure about what you're doing and you can explain why you're doing it, that's the important part. Not just say, I'm right about this, but being able to explain at some intellectual depth why it works. Uh, then you need to stick by your guns. And fortunately, I'm with a publisher now that doesn't seem to care that there's humor in some books and, and that we're switching genres as we go, uh, as long as it gives them uh, the feeling that this is a Poon's novel. And I will have to say that's probably the first time in my career that I've had that. Your latest book, Quicksilver, is packed with surprises. Can you tell us a little bit about this new character, Quinn Quicksilver? And did Quicksilver start with the story for you or with the character? It started with the character. Actually, a little bit. I don't know where these things come from, but one day I just had this image came into my head of a lonely desert highway. And sitting on the dividing line between the lanes was a bassinet. Uh, a thatched plastic bassinet with a baby in it. And that was where this began. And Quinn Quicksilver is somebody who, when he was three days old, was abandoned on the middle of a des lonely desert highway with a note pinned to him saying, Quinn Quicksilver. Uh, and he opens the novel. It's one of those that almost cried out to be first person instead of uh, any other voice. And he starts the novel by explaining this to you for a paragraph and then how he ended up in an orphanage until he was uh, 18. And uh, now he's 19, he's been on his own for a year. And uh, that was how it began with that character. And very quickly, uh, I realized, okay, what is the, what, what's going on in his life now? And what's going on is, uh, if, occurred to me it would be amusing if this character who nobody wanted when he was three days old, when he was in the orphanage, no one would adopt him. Uh, and yet now when he's 19 years old, every law enforcement officer in the United States is after him and he doesn't know why. Uh, and that's where those sort of things came together in a few hours for me right at the beginning of this. And uh, and then when I knew why everybody was after him, I got very excited about it. But I'll probably withhold that because it's quite a spoiler. Yeah, yeah. We, we don't do spoilers. No. So. <laughs> you dedicate this book to the memory of four writers, Ray Bradbury, Robert Heinlein, Theodore Sturgeon, and Jack Douglas. Writers that you say pumped up my imagination in wildly different ways during the years I suffered through grades 7 through 12. And one of our favorite things to talk about on the first 50 pages is the transformative power of reading. Um, from this introduction, it sounds like you were a reader at a young age, and certainly these authors had a profound influence on your life. Can you talk a little bit about um, just the transformative power of reading in your own life? Uh, it, it was great. I started reading when I was very young. Uh, and by the time I was 12, I, in those days, I don't know how it works now, but uh, our small town library had uh, children and young adult section, an adult section. And if you were uh, not 18, you couldn't go into the adult section. Uh, and 
the books, the worst books in it were things like Peyton Place and that, but you were not allowed in there. Uh, but by the time I was 12, I had literally read every book in the children and young adults section. And the librarian, I guess, sensing that I was mentally mature enough for it, allowed me to go into the uh, adult section. And therefore I started reading other things, but still mostly what I read in those days was science fiction, Ray Bradbury, uh, Robert Heinlein, Theodore Sturgeon. And by the time I was uh, 11th or 12th grade, I guess, in high school, I found a writer nobody probably knows anymore, but his name was Jack Douglas, and he was a television writer, but he wrote books of absolute screwball humor. <laughs> I can remember, the two I remember most clearly were Never Trust a Naked Bus Driver, <laughs> and... Uh, my brother was an only child, uh, and uh, they, they were just totally absurd books of absurd little moments and scenes. Uh, and I was so captivated with them, and that helped form my own sense of humor of the absurd. And later, uh, Douglas went on to write nonfiction accounts of his life with his wife uh, and his pack of wolves. He actually had wolves as pets um, mm -hmm. and uh, I mentioned him years later oh just a few years ago I guess it was in a novel and I got a letter from his son which was very very sweet and fun yeah. to get but writers have you know it's it's hugely impactful uh, I, I remember when uh, I in college I had a friend who was reading John D. McDonald and raving about it and by that time I was caught up in a, a little bit in the college thing and oh well i'm an english major of john d mcdonald i don't know that's a suspense writer and then after college i one day said well i'll see what harry likes about this writer and when i read one john d mcdonald i read 34 more in 30 days <laughs> wow uh, i was saturated with john d mcdonald who was an absolute fine writer and uh, uh the next thing i wrote was so much an imitation of John B. McDonald, I had to destroy it. It was an entire finished novel and it sounded like John B. McDonald had written it. It wouldn't have been a good thing to do. Uh, but if you're judicious, everybody you read uh, influences your own writing because they show you other ways of approaching story problems, character problems, and you can absorb all that different technique. When I was very young and stupid, which they often go together. <laughs> I thought uh, I there are probably so many tricks a writer has to learn. And since I've learned all of them, every book I get easier. What I learned was there are an infinite number of techniques. And if you want to call them tricks, do so. There's an infinite number, not a small number you have to read. And every book does not get easier. It gets harder because you're demands on yourself get more complicated and more uh, ambitious. When you are reading for pleasure, do you have time to read for pleasure? Are, are you able to escape into the reader perspective? Or do you find yourself deconstructing the works that you're reading? I don't deconstruct them so much. I'll tell you what happens. Uh, uh, in last few years, I have... Uh, I thought, I need to go back and read some things that I loved 40 years ago and see if I was right or wrong. What will I think of them today? And for the most part, what I love then still holds up. 
Although once in a while you get back and think, you read something and what in the world did I see in that? <laughs> uh, but one thing that does happen is once you've read a lot and once you've written a lot and you hopefully have gotten better, I don't have patience for badly written things anymore or borderline badly written things. Uh, somebody who makes fundamental errors uh, that the publisher didn't bother to catch I get angry about it. I used to feel that if I started a book, I had to read it to the end. These days, I don't feel that way. If I read 30 pages or 40 pages and I'm saying, this makes no sense or this is poorly constructed, then I just put it aside because life is too short. There's too many but good books, right? <laughs> there's too many good books. And also because of what I write, research is really important. And I find myself reading a great deal of research. So that limits my, uh, my pleasure reading time, though I still have. Yeah, I think I remember reading in one of the answers that you gave to somebody's question about your writing and your process that I think you said in there that you read some like over 150 books a year as part of, you know, honing your craft and research and all that. And I was like, I don't even think I get to 150 books a year being a librarian. So that's well, pretty amazing. I, I, when my wife and I were first married, we didn't have a, a TV set because we couldn't afford one. And we ended up not getting one for eight or 10 years. Uh, but we read every evening. We sat down, and we read for hours, uh, each of us in our own armchair. And the, over those years, each of us read nearly 200 books a year. Uh, and that's totally doable when you have no television or social media. Yeah. Uh, and reading is your primary form of entertainment. So that's why that was possible. These days, I can't possibly read that many copies. I really enjoyed Quicksilver. And as I was reading it, I very obviously thought this is a book that I'd love to recommend to a, a younger reader, maybe a reluctant reader, looking for action and adventure, creative and scary worlds, and a fight between good and evil. Well, thank you. I, uh, because I was a teacher and taught high school, um, I, I'm always in the back of my head is, is those kids I had, students who were uh, quick-witted and uh, readers and finding their way in life. And I know that though my audience is largely adult, uh, that kids find their way to these books. So I always want the books to speak to them as well. So it's something I'm always thinking about. Well, Sometimes with the reluctant readers, it does take kind of a special hook to get them into reading the story. And I think, um, like we mentioned earlier, there's enough of the surprises, enough humor, enough action, um, you know, that it really will keep the attention of uh, readers. And a, a thing I think about with young people, we're living in a world where there's a lot of forces that say, oh, there's really no such thing as evil. It's just, uh, you know, there's bad decisions and there's there's reasons that people make those bad decisions. And uh, I come from a different perspective. Uh, there is good and there is evil. And I, I think young people need to be able to have the tools to recognize the difference. And so that's always part of what I'm also doing in these books. So thank you for recommending. 
Of course. Uh, speaking of good in the world, you've been a longtime supporter of Canine Companions for in- Independence. Could you tell us a little bit about that organization and why they have such a special place in your heart? Uh, CCI, Canine Companions for Independence, produces assistance dogs for uh, people with severe disabilities and also now for uh, autistic children. Uh, and the dogs in the autistic cases with autistic children are amazing, especially amazing. I have seen situations where autistic children with very bad behavior get, an, uh, uh, it's called a socializing dog in that case. And the very fact of having that well-trained dog that relates to the child takes the child's bad behavior away. And it's an amazing thing to watch. The autism is still there, but the child is happier and the child's parents have a great strain removed from them. I've seen people who are quadriplegics who uh, can't live alone, and they live alone with an assistance dog trained by CCI. It's, uh, it's one of the most moving and uh, fascinating things I've ever seen is the power of the human dog bond. And these dogs, what they can learn and what they can do for these these people goes beyond just opening doors or picking up dropped objects, which people in a wheelchair can't do. Um, and all those many tasks these dogs can learn. Uh, it goes beyond that. It goes to a relationship that's on the level of the soul. And it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a profound thing to watch. Uh, we've been involved with it now for, oh, I, it must be going on. 35 years, and uh, and it's one of the most satisfying things uh, about life is going to those graduations and seeing these lives transform. Um, i just share a quick story with you. When I first started working in the public library, I was helping somebody find books about dogs. I, you know, just, do you have books about dogs? Yes, let me show you where they're at. And um, I happened to just kind of skim by this book in the nonfiction by, well, I think it was probably written by Trixie or Anna, one of your golden retrievers, right? With the Dean Koontz as, as told to Dean Koontz. Um, but I was like, is Dean Koontz, right? What? <laughs> and it was such an enjoyable um, kind of, you know, I, I flipped through the book and I'm like, oh, that's fun, you know? And it just a very different side of what, you know, people see you as this master of suspense, um, but you really have some touching memoirs and some just fun books from that dog perspective. It's, uh, I don't believe in former lives, but if I had one, I was probably a golden retriever. Uh, I have such affinity for golden retrievers. And uh, uh, it became natural that Trixie would become a writer. I mean, she's a coons, so she had to become <laughs> a writer. And she wrote a total of four books, uh, Life is Good, Christmas is Good, I, Trixie, Who Am Dog, uh, and Trixie and Jinx, which was a friend of hers, a dog. And uh, I had so much fun with those that when we lost Trixie and then Anna came along, uh, one day I thought, oh, Anna's got a book in her. Uh, uh, Trixie's publisher kept pressing me. And I said, oh, let's do a Dear Abby for dogs. And it could be called Ask Anna. And uh, we did a photo book of dogs with 
question on one page and and on the next page answering it. We, I had so much fun with those. I don't know that they sold terribly well, but I had a lot. Of fun. Well, we have them in the public library, so for sure. Um, I on on your website, I stumbled across the four collectors page um, on deankuntz.com. And there are some really interesting stories there. And of course, as librarians, we strive to help people find correct information. And this part of your website is designed to correct misinformation on your work. And so I, I can't let you leave without asking, are you currently working on a memoir or do you have plans for one in the near future? My wife has been pushing me for years saying, you have got to get to work on a, a memoir about the career because there's so many interesting stories in it. Uh, uh, I've, I've worked with a, a lot of people that were a pleasure to work with, um, like uh, Steve Sommers, the director of The Mummy, uh, and then people like uh, Bob Weinstein who weren't so much fun to work with. <laughs> And uh, all the stories tend to end up funny at the time, especially in Hollywood, when they're, you're going through the ordeal, it doesn't seem funny. But in afterward, when you have time to think about it, almost everything becomes amusing. So after having written uh, A Big Little Life, which was a memoir about our dog Trixie and our relationship with her, and ha it did succeed quite well, it was on the New York Times, I have had a bug in my head about writing a memoir about the career, and I think I will get to it before it's too late, but fiction always sort of comes first, and I'm having a ball with it. I'm more creative, I think, with this new publisher that's so supportive, and I've been in years, and uh, more ideas are coming to me, and they're more exciting, but I'm going to find some time in there to start writing a memoir. Well, I know I can speak for... Um, readers across the world, we will be excited to have that in our hands someday. Well, okay. I, I, I might not start at 185. <laughs> so in the advanced reader copy that we have of Quicksilver, your editor, Jessica Tribble-Wells, writes in the introduction to the book, Working with Dean is a masterclass in storytelling, structurally sound, fantastical ideas, and grounded in the core of goodness that we all hope is at the heart of humanity. I hope people like Quinn Quicksilver and his friends really do exist and that they are fighting the good fight for all of us. We honestly really couldn't agree more. Well, I love, Jessica is my editor. I love her middle name, Triple. Uh, <laughs> if you know some Star Trek episodes, that has resonance. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, as I said, the great thing about uh working with Thomas Mercer, which is an Amazon company, is uh, the enthusiasm, support, and the understanding about what I'm doing. And uh, and that hasn't always been there. So it's, uh, it's exciting, and I hope I can keep doing it for quite a while. We hope so, too. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today, Dean. We know that readers will find much to love in Quicksilver. Thank you very much for having me.